We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to The Stender with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Knopf, please visit mikeknopf.com. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. A few years back, there was a, a great movie that came out called Invictus, which uh, chronicled a story of the South African rugby team during the era of, uh, of integration in South Africa, the end of apartheid. And uh, one of the main characters in the film was Nelson Mandela, played wonderfully by the great Morgan Freeman. And there's this incredible line where someone asks, what's the secret of Mandela's character? What made him such a compelling figure? What made him such a transformational figure in South Africa? What enabled him to lead the moral revolution in some senses that he led in South Africa, and the response that came back, in the movie at least, I'm not sure if this is a line of someone from history or not, or it was just a good piece of writing in the movie, but the line in the movie was, nobody is invisible to him. The secret of Mandela's greatness is that nobody was invisible to him. He was able to recognize the humanity of all South Africans, all people, that he was able to see rich or poor, black or white, that in Mandela's presence, you were a person. You mattered. You were seen. And you could be seen. And you could be known, and thereby your problems would be known and recognized as challenges brought to the attention of a person of power and importance and hopefully resolved. Nobody was invisible to him. If I were to think of a theme of this week's Torah portion of Parashat Bamidbar, it would be that same theme, the theme of visibility, that we are called in this week's Torah portion to ensure that all of us are visible to each other and that everyone is visible to each and every one of us. So as I mentioned before, part of the Torah portion talks about how the Israelites encamped when they were in the wilderness, how their camp was set up. The Torah spends a good amount of time talking about how this camp was set up. And it's maybe hard to tell when you're just reading it Verbally, when you're reading it in words, there's no illustrations in the Bible. But if you were to draw out a picture of the camp of the Israelites as it's described in the Torah, what you would find is essentially a camp in the round, a square or a circle, all around the Mishkan in the middle, the 
tabernacle in the middle and a circle round about or a square round about with each of the tribes in around the perimeter. And one might ask, why is it that the Torah cares to spend so much time talking about how the Israelites encamped in the wilderness? As Nitivo Shalom points out, as he often points out, and he points out especially about this Torah portion, the Torah is supposed to be eternal. It's supposed to provide all of us guidance for all time, not to merely be a book about history, about the minute details of things like military encampments and wilderness sojourns. If it's telling us something, it's telling us not only about what happened then, but about now. Why does the Torah then spend so much time talking about how the Israelites camped in the wilderness? And I think that the answer is, or one possible answer is, if you camp in the way that the Israelites did, if you set up your city, your town, your society in the way that the Israelites did in the wilderness, you are setting up a situation in which everyone is visible to each other. I can see the people next to me. I can see the people across to me. I can see the people diagonally from me. I can see everyone. No Israelite in that encampment was invisible to any other Israelite. Everyone could be seen, whether you were in a lowly tribe or you were in a great tribe whether you were poor or whether you were rich, whether you were sick or whether you were healthy, whether you were a woman or whether you were a man, whether you were of military age, whether you were a child, everyone could be seen by everyone. There was no one who was invisible to anyone else in that encampment. And perhaps what it's trying to teach us is that we, the descendants of those Israelites, we, children of Israel, should also strive to build societies, to build communities where no one is invisible to anyone. We, of course, live in a society that is rife with invisibility. It's ironic, of course, because we live in a time where there's so much visibility where we can literally turn on the TVs, turn on any channel, go on the internet, we can find and see anything that there is to be seen, and yet, in our time, there is perhaps more invisibility than there ever has been before, because everyone can just focus only on the visibility that they want, only on those things that they want to see, that they want to focus on. There's no more one network or three networks beaming into everyone's home where regardless of whether or not you want to watch that thing that's on the TV, you're going to watch it because that's what's on. Now, if we don't like what one news channel is telling us, we just go to another one. If we don't like what one friend is saying on Facebook, we just block them. We can turn off images as easily as we can turn them on. We can ignore people and things as easily as we can see them. And if I were to identify one of the core maladies at the heart of our society, one of the great sicknesses of our 
society today, it's the, it's the sickness of invisibility or a partial visibility. There was a great column in the New York Times the other day. I was talking with Robin about this before. I forgot who wrote it, uh, but you can look it up. It was talking about the rot at the heart of America. And the argument about the rot at the heart of America is that there's a rottenness in America, not just in Denmark, there's a rottenness in America. And the rot starts at the top. The rot starts with a corrupt, dishonest, and cruel administration. But I think that the columnist is wrong. That the president, the administration, regardless of what we think about him and them, is a manifestation of the sickness that corrodes our entire society. It's no surprise that in a society that is fixated only on what we want to see, that we've elected someone to the highest office in the country primarily because that person was able to make himself the most visible person in the world. And so we equate the ability to cut through invisibility with capability. And so we've elevated to the highest office someone who was able to cut through the invisibility, become the most visible person in the world. But of course, visibility is not equivalent to decency. And at the same time, we become fixated on who is most visible and ignored increasingly those who are least visible. How often in the news do you hear about the 140 million Americans who live in poverty? Sometimes you hear about the middle class. Sometimes you hear about the struggles of the middle class. Every once in a while, you hear about the opioid epidemic in poor rural places like Appalachia, West Virginia, every once in a while, you hear stories about people in poor communities usually associated with the crimes that are committed within those communities. But rarely do we see people who are struggling day to day with the crippling poverty that afflicts 140 million people in this country, almost half of the population. As I mentioned last week, 52% of children, 45% of women, 60% of people of color. How often do we see those people who can't afford to live because all they make is a minimum wage? A minimum wage, which should, one would think, enable pers a person to meet the basic requirements of subsistence. But instead, we live in a society where there is no state or county where someone earning minimum wage could afford a two-bedroom apartment at market rates. 
and where there's over two and a half million people living in shelters, transitional housing in tent cities. How many of us have seen those people? Have seen the transitional housing? Have gone to Gilpin Court? Have gone to Creighton Court? Have seen people who lived through the winter in Richmond without heat? How many of us have seen the people in Flint, Michigan, who still don't have drinkable water? How many of us have seen the people in Puerto Rico who still don't have electricity? Are they visible to us? Are we living in a society like the Torah invites us to build, where we are encamped in a circle where we can see each other? And by seeing each other, care about what's happening to each other? Or do we live in a space of limited visibility? Now you might say, Rabbi, I've studied this Torah portion, and I know that what you're saying about the camp of the Israelites, maybe it's true, maybe it's not, but really it's just a reflection of what the Israelites knew coming from Egypt. That there are descriptions that we've found through archaeology of the encampments, of the military encampments belonging to Ramses II, to the pharaoh of Egypt, for example, who is purportedly the pharaoh of the Exodus. We know that maybe the Israelites just learned how to encamp this way from the Egyptian society that they came from. And if that's true, you might say, then it's hardly a moral example to the rest of us. The Egyptian society from which the Israelites came was a prime example of this invisibility sickness. After all, the Egyptians were responsible for enslaving an entire nation of people, of seeing them as less worthy, as less human, as abominable, and thereby not caring about their plight, not hearing their plight, not hearing their cries until ruin was brought to Egypt. And what I would say in response is that true, it's true. The Israelite encampment reflects that Egyptian encampment with one primary difference. At the heart of the Egyptian encampment was also a tent, just like there was in the heart of the Israelite encampment. But the tent at the heart of the Egyptian encampment the tent at the heart of how Egyptian society was set up was not a house of God, was not a house of gathering, a house of worship, a house of inspiration. The tent in the center of Egyptian camp was Pharaoh's tent. And the entire camp of the Egyptians was set up with one purpose in mind. That if there was an attack, if there was an assault on the camp, Pharaoh would be safe because surrounding him would be all of the cannon fodder that forms a barrier between the attackers and the most important person within Egyptian society. But that is not how the Israelite camp was set up. The Israelite camp was not set up to protect an individual, 
but rather to protect an ideal. Within the tent of meeting was understood to be the presence of God. To be the presence of a God who we are told in this week's Torah portion, as the Israelites are about to embark on their journey to the promised land, a God who wants nothing else than to count each and every Israelite. And the Midrash says about that, that God counts the Israelites because of the love of them is before him. Because God loves them, God counts them every hour. When they went out of Egypt, God counted them And when they transgressed with the golden calf, God counted them. When God came to put upon them his presence, God counted them. Now, I, for many summers, was a group leader uh, for USY on wheels. We had about 50 kids on the bus every summer. And whenever we got off the bus and whenever we got on the bus... There was one thing we did, and we did it over and over and over again, sometimes three or four times in a setting, was count the kids. Why? Because if we lost even one, it would have been a catastrophe. And so I understand a God that counts the people over and over and over again. What that says to me is that in God's eyes, Every single person matters, regardless of who you are. Every single person matters, and if one was missing, it would have been a catastrophe. And so the Israelite encampment, centered around the tabernacle, centered around a symbol of God's presence on earth, is really at its core a symbol, a reminder that every single person matters. And of course, at the heart of that tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant. And at the heart of the covenant, at the heart of the Torah, is the command, Ve'ahavta l'reacha kamocha. Love your neighbor as yourself. The Israelites were encamped so that they could see each other and be seen by each other, that they could be acknowledged to one another. And the camp was situated such that at its core is a God that reminds them that every single person matters. Crystallized with a symbol of a covenant which at its core says you matter and as much as you matter, your neighbor matters too. Your neighbor next to you, your neighbor across the way from you, your neighbor on the other side of town, your neighbor on the other side of the world, each and every person matters. I mentioned last week that I've begun to get involved with a movement called the Poor People's Campaign. And the Poor People's Campaign is a continuation of the campaign that was started and never completed 
by Martin Luther King in 1968. A movement to end poverty and its concomitant evils of racism and militarism in this country. We have restarted this campaign to finish the work that Dr. King began 50 years ago before he was assassinated. The movement began last week with demonstrations in 35 states and continues this week as well. I invite you to join us. This week's meeting here in Richmond takes place tomorrow night, which as you know, is the eve of second day of Shavuot. I won't dictate your practice, but you should know that I likely will not be attending that gathering. But should you be so moved to, you can. It's at 7th Street Christian Church, just up the road here, uh, off Malvern and Grove. And you can join to get connected to what is happening in that movement. But at the core of the movement, the image that sticks out to me is one of the images that began the Poor People's Movement in 1968. That when two workers in Memphis, two sanitation workers in Memphis, were crushed to death on the job, exposing unsafe conditions among sanitation workers in the city, poverty wages, and unfair treatment. The sanitation workers went on strike. It was the strike that Dr. King went to support that ultimately resulted in his assassination that April. But the image that sticks out in my mind about that march, one reflected in our Torah portion today and the one that the new Poor People's Campaign is fixated on is those sanitation workers in the streets holding signs saying, I am a man. And what our Torah portion shows is that wherever you are situated in the camp, whoever you are, you are somebody. And you ought to matter to everyone because you matter to God. Shabbat Shalom.